Now, I think I've asked the kids in here at least at one time before what your least favorite subject in school is. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the, the majority consensus in here was, was math, right? So I'm going to bring up a picture of a, of a math problem, if you will. Algebra, actually. Now, I took that snapshot actually from my, my son's algebra book. And Lord help him, my son's just like me. I can't stand algebra. It's, it's horrible. Now, um, he may enjoy it more than, than I did. He's saying no. His eyes got really big. No, I, I hated any type of math, much less when there's, you begin to throw letters in there. I mean, numbers are bad enough. I don't need letters mixed in with my numbers. Keep the alphabet separate from the numbers, please. And, and I hated algebra. I hated this kind of stuff. But, but it's important to learn these things, I guess. And um, it is, children. It's important to learn these things. Absolutely vital that you learn what X is. All right? Now, the thing about, I'm already in trouble today. The thing about a formula like this, as Noah has learned, when, you, when you're putting together a formula, and, and this is one of the easy ones from early on in his book this year, and this is simple when compared to the ones he's doing now. Um, you can actually get one little piece of that formula wrong early on in the process, and even though you're doing the rest of it right, the answer's still wrong. You got to get the whole thing right. And when I think about what we talked about last week about understanding the, the importance of our union with Christ and, and, and how that translates us to living a life of holiness, that we have to understand what's been accomplished at the cross. If anywhere in that formula of what Christ has done, we, we misinterpret or we miss or we don't understand it, then we're not going to understand why holiness is important. And we'll end up with either legalism or we'll come up with an answer that involves, well, I can just do whatever I want since my sins are paid for. You can kind of have the attitude I had when I was in school. And, you know, a teacher said, well, what's X? And I say, who cares what X is, all right? I mean, that's not the attitude we should have. And, and to be honest with you, in, the, in Romans chapter 6, Paul is dealing with people that have a very cavalier attitude toward holiness, well, what does it matter if our sins have been forgiven? If we're not under the law and we're under grace, then shouldn't we go on sinning? I mean, if, if grace abounds, shouldn't we just keep on sinning so that grace keeps on flowing? And they misunderstood something. Something's wrong in the formula somewhere. And so Paul comes back and says, wait a second here. You need to understand what the gospel has accomplished, what Christ has accomplished on the cross. He, he wants them to see uh, their union with Christ and how that's at the center of their salvation. It's at the, at the hub, if you will. Now, I had to correct something from last week. Last week I said that Paul mentions union with Christ 70 times. As I listened back to the sermon, I realized I said 70. What was really in my notes was 170 times. Paul mentions union with Christ in his epistles. So therefore, if it is mentioned 170 times, I think we should probably infer from that that it's important. And it is. Our union with Christ is a crucial doctrine of the Scriptures. So the formula is this. Those who, are, who have been baptized, those who have truly professed Christ as Lord, are therefore united to Him, number one, in death, and number two, in life and resurrection. And if that is so, if we're united to Him in His death, then the bondage of sin has been broken. 
The dominion that sin had over our lives has been broken. And secondly, our union with him and his resurrection has ensured new life. Both a new way of living now as we walk in newness of life. And most fully, a resurrected body. And after teaching those those facts, those indicatives of the gospel in verses 1 through 10, in verses 11 through 14, Paul shifts to the commands, uh, to the imperatives of the gospel. And we looked at those verses some last week, and we're going to look at it more this week, verses 11 through 14. But we're going to look all the way to the very end of the passage. So we're going to cover Romans 6, verses 11 through 23 today. So go ahead and stand if you would. Find that passage of Scripture, Romans 6, verses 11 through 23. We're going to finish out Romans 6. And by the way, this will be the conclusion to our Grow series. We're going to finish out this series today with this passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Of course, Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit as he wrote these words. And so since the Holy Spirit gave him the words to say, this is the authority of Jesus Christ as if he were standing right here speaking to us. Verse 11 of Romans chapter 6. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's an amazing word. It's more than we can even begin to to digest just this morning. But Father, we pray that you'd help us Uh, Help me to speak, give me a mouth to speak, give us ears to hear, and may you bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I have two points today, just two points in the sermon, and here's the first one. If we are to grow in holiness, we must decide not to serve the tyrant from whom we have been set free. If we're going to grow in holiness or godliness, we must decide not to serve the tyrant, and that tyrant is sin, from whom we have been set free. Verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Let not. Let not. There is an act of the will involved in our sanctification. We must act. Let not. We are called to make a decision not to allow sin to reign. This is a consistent command in the scriptures to the believer. We must willfully fight sin. We must strive. We must toil. We must work hard. Paul says in Colossians, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. We do play a very real role in our sanctification in that sense. Therefore, this decision that we must make of not letting sin reign is a very real decision of our will. It's important for us to distinguish that our justification and all that it accomplishes, including our new birth, is a monergistic work of God, meaning He's the one at work. Mono means one. We were dead. We were enslaved. We were helpless. And God intervened. And we were saved by His grace alone. But now that we have been made alive, now that we've been set free, we are equipped, enabled, and empowered and called on to work out our salvation and strive towards holiness. We are saved unto good works. And though our justification, which is our being made right with God, was monergistic, His work alone, our sanctification, becoming more like Christ, is in a sense a synergistic work. Meaning we we are called to work alongside what God is already doing because of what God is already doing. We are willfully cooperating with God in what He's doing inside of us. And the fact that He's already at work inside of us guarantees that it's going to take place. Philippians 2, 12-13 is a passage we've repeated several times here at our church to, to emphasize this very point. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So work, brothers and sisters, work it out. Make it happen. But the foundation for the work that you are to be doing is not found in you. It's found in what God is already doing. For, the next verse says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So the basis or the foundation of our hard work that we do in cooperation with God is the finished work that He's already accomplished through Christ and that He's bringing to bear in our life. So Paul can say later in Philippians, Philippians 3 verse 12, he can say this, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on, I press on to make it my own because, now here's the foundation, he's going to press on to make the, the resurrected life of Christ his own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The foundation and the basis for our hard work is the work that God has already accomplished through Christ Jesus. And he would say to the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians, he would say, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. The leaven is sin. Cleanse out the sin out of your church. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And then he says, as you really are unleavened. He says, you are free from sin. You are unleavened. So get rid of the sin. Get the sin out. Because you are a people who have been cleaned of that. And so we are called to, to do this work of sanctification. And this passage today is no different. 
In verse 12, the therefore of verse 12, let not sin therefore reign. The therefore of verse 12 points us back to verse 11 as the basis. Verse 11 says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the only reason you can, you can fight sin. It's because you're dead to it and you're alive in Christ Jesus. He says, consider this. Consider the facts of the gospel and live differently. Sin is a tyrant that we once were serving, that we were once under. It had dominion over us, but no longer. Why? Because we're dead to it and we're now alive in Christ. We're alive to God. We once willfully and freely served a dictator named Sin. And now... We are dead to that old boss and instead we've been made new in Christ and thus we freely and willfully serve Jesus Christ. We have to fix our minds on the facts. He says, consider yourselves. I mentioned this last week. Think about it. Ponder it. Meditate upon it and believe it. I I mentioned last week we need to read our obituary and believe it. Using a Nobel as, as an illustration of that, how he read his obituary that was printed before he died, and when he read what he read about himself, it changed his life. We need to read your obituary, who you are in Christ, what's been accomplished, and it should change the way we live. Consider these things. Consider them to be true and believe them. Believe what Romans 6, 6 says, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self is dead. It died with Christ. And because it died, the the slave master named Sin has lost his rights over us. The slave master's claim over us was that we deserved to die because we were lawbreakers. But Christ took that death upon his own shoulders. And so now the slave master has no case. Christ lived a life without breaking the law. Yet... He died a lawbreaker's death. But since he had never sinned, death had no claim over him. And so he rose again, escaping the sting of death. And now those who are united to him by faith have that truth of the gospel, that truth about what Christ has accomplished, credited to them. So now sin and death have no claim over us either. Sin and death have no claim over us. That's the gospel. These are the things that we are to think about, meditate upon, consider. So in light of considering the glory of the gospel, we must make a willful decision not to let sin reign in our life. Only when one is united to Christ can we make such a decision. The will is only empowered to choose righteousness once it's been set free. Prior to our union with Christ... We all willfully and freely rebelled. It's all we could do. If you haven't been united to Christ, you can't do anything but rebel against God. You're an enemy of God. Prior to union with Christ, we freely rebelled. Our will will always be true to its nature. And our nature under Adam was a sinful nature bent only toward treason against God. But by grace through faith, we have been enjoined to Christ. And therefore, we have been given a new nature a new heart, and the will has been radically redirected, operating according to our new nature so that now we freely, willfully choose God and righteousness. That's the mark of a believer. The heart has been made new and has been directed toward God. 
Let me skip forward a little bit to verse 17 and we'll come back to it later. But he says in verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient, what? From the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. What does that remind you of? It, it, it takes my mind back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 26 and following. Where God said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27 is the most stunning verse of that passage in Ezekiel. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The only way any single person has the capacity... To obey God and to do what is right in his eyes and righteous is because they've been given a new heart. Outside of that, no one can please God. So now we can do, if you're a Christian and you truly, truly have been united to Christ, now we can do what what Paul says. We can make a decision not to let sin reign. We know, as we've already mentioned, that For those in Christ, sin's dominion, sin's reign has been broken. So the Christian, if a Christian were to let sin reign in his life, he would be living a lie. Because that reign, that sin has no right to the throne. That that sin has has been dethroned. For the true Christian to continue willfully in sin is foolishness and is to live a lie. Sin is no more the king in the life of a true believer than a, than a child would be the king of England if he went to Burger King and stuck a little thing on his head and declared himself such. Sin has no claim over your life if you truly are a believer. And so why would you let it rule? You wouldn't let it rule. Sin has no claim to the throne. Christ has broken the claims. Essentially, Paul is saying this. Do not let sin reign... Because sin does not reign. Or do not let sin be your master because sin's not your master. Christians live under a new rule, under the kingdom of God. And thus we should have no desire to live as if we're under sin's rule. To make us obey its passions. Sin is a, sin is a tyrant. And it will hijack our passions. Sin no longer reigns, so our our passions should no longer be at its disposal. Sin doesn't have to make a non-believer obey its passions. A non-believer naturally obeys sin's passions. But if you're a Christian and you're willfully sinning, that is something that's happening where your passions have been hijacked by sin. For a believer to obey the passions of sin is is a... is an anomaly. It shouldn't be happening. So the question is, who are we going to serve? That's sort of the question that Paul's asking in today's passage overall. Who are we going to serve? That's what Paul means when he uses the verb present. In this passage, he'll talk about presenting yourselves or presenting your members. Three different times, he'll say present. Paul will draw a contrast between presenting oneself to sin and presenting oneself to righteousness. Present, the, word, the verb present simply means to give yourself over or to, to subject yourself to in service of. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments. The word instruments here can be weapons or tools. 
Do not present yourself to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do not present your members as instruments or as tools for for ungodliness, for unrighteousness. Now what are our members? Paul here is simply referring to our whole being, every bit of who we are. All of who we are, our mind, body, soul, and strength. Paul doesn't want any part of us to be a servant of sin. This includes what's seen externally, our body parts, and what's unseen internally, our thoughts, our emotions. So often people foolishly think that winning the battle against sin is simply means they aren't committing any outward behaviors that are wrong. I'm not smoking, I'm, I'm not drinking, I'm not sleeping around. While inwardly they're lusting and they're having their minds addicted to trivial things. Paul wants the whole body, what's on the outside and what's on the inside, to be presented to God as a tool or, or, or a weapon of righteousness and not to sin. How about the tongue? A lot of times we fool ourselves and think, well, I'm not doing a bunch of bad stuff, but, but the words that come out of our mouth or the tone with which the words come out of our mouth are not being used as an instrument of holiness or righteousness. Instead, well, it's what James says in James 3.8. No human being can tame the tongue, for it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not be so. That should not happen in a believer's life. Because he should be given over as all of his body, all his members, as instruments of righteousness, including this little instrument right here which is the deadliest of all of the weapons that we possess on our body. Christian, don't give your tongue, don't give your mind, don't give your hands, don't give your intellect, don't give your sexuality, don't give your emotions, anything. Don't give it over to be used by that despot, that tyrant named sin. Why? Because through your union with Christ, you are no longer under sin's rule. And our heartfelt desire should be to turn ourselves over to God to be used as weapons of righteousness. And if you are united to Christ, guess what? When you misuse your body, you are misusing a body that belongs to Christ and is united to him. Paul warns us, don't be united to a prostitute. You're uniting Christ to a prostitute. Don't do the things with your body that sin wants you to do. You are doing that with something that belongs to Christ. You are united to him and you're dragging him into that filth. Our union with Christ should drive us to holiness. What I'm watching on TV, do I want Christ to be watching this through my eyes? No, I'm not going to go sleep around, but I'll watch someone do it on a television in front of me. We are united to Christ. It should change what we watch, what we think, what we do. Paul grounds our decision, again, our decision to willfully serve God and not serve sin. He grounds that decision of the will, and it is a decision, on the gospel. Verse 14. For, for, these little words like for and because and though, and these are important little conjunctions in the scriptures that help you understand the meanings of texts. For, in other words, because, 
Don't present your members to sin as instruments as of unrighteousness, but to God as instruments of righteousness. Why? Because for, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Paul right here, I told you in verses 10 through 14, he shifts to the, the imperatives, the commands, but he shifts back in verse 14 to the indicatives. In other words, I'm going to command you to make a decision not to give your life over to sin. Give it over to God. And said, why? Because I'm going to tell you the facts. Here's the facts. Sin does not have dominion over you, Christian. It doesn't have rule over you. You're not under law. You're under grace. Not under law, meaning we are no longer living under the weight and the burden of having to obey the law in order to accomplish our righteousness. We still will want to obey the law if we truly are in Christ, but under the law means trying to accomplish your own righteousness through the keeping of the law. And we're not under the weight in that, of that burden anymore. And we're not under the burden of the fact that we're all lawbreakers and thus justly deserve the wrath of God. We're not, we're not under that weight any longer either. We're not under the law, but we're under grace. Meaning that the unmerited favor of God has been bestowed upon us. Pulling us out from under the expectations and the condemnation of the law. By uniting us to Christ who was born, according to the scriptures, under the law. Under the weight of the expectation of the law. And he perfectly obeyed it. He was born under the law. But because he never violated the law, he was never under its condemnation. So Christ was born under the law. He perfectly obeyed the law. And we are united to him. So we are no longer under the law. But we're under grace. And he took that condemnation that we deserve for being lawbreakers upon himself. And so that weight of the law. Imagine like the old cartoons. The anvil falling. That weight of the law. We were brought out from under it. And he stood under it. And took it on the cross. Boom. Not deserving an ounce of it. He took it on the cross. So we're now under grace. We have received undeserved love from an unobligated giver. Or as Tim Keller has said, we've been welcomed into a place that we have no right to be. That's the glory of the gospel of grace. And it's so freeing. But don't let, don't let Satan cause you to think foolishly tempt you to think foolishly about your freedom, as some did. Verse 15, Paul asked this question that he assumes or that he probably knows that people are asking in the church. What then? Are we to sin because we're no longer under the law but under grace? He says, by no means. God forbid is what he's saying. This is essentially the same question that was asked in Romans 6, verse 1. There always will be there were then and there always will be some who just don't get the gospel. So Paul has to continually say things like he said to the church in Galatia. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. The true nature of, free, of the freedom of the gospel so shocks our system and our minds. That people either do one of two things. They either, they either dress it up. Okay, and add law keeping to it or they dress it down to make it a license to do whatever we want to do. And both are wrong. And to both things, Paul says, God forbid, by no means. 
The gospel of grace has put us on a new course under a new ruler. The course of Christ's likeness under Christ our King. And so that takes me to my second point for today. If we're to grow in holiness, we must not only decide not to serve the tyrant from whom we've been set free, we must desire to serve the king by whom and for whom we have been set free. No longer are we presenting ourselves serving sin, but we are now presenting ourselves to God, serving God in Christ. All human beings serve one master or another, either sin or Christ. All human beings. There is no middle ground. Every single person in this room and every single person outside of this room is serving a master. It's either King Jesus or tyrant sin. There's no middle ground. That's why Paul shifts here in verse 16 from from warfare imagery to that of slavery. So he kind of has a warfare imagery here in, in verses 11 through 14. Then he, he shifts, and the rest of this passage, he's really kind of driving home this image of slavery. Again, he uses the verb present yourself. Present yourself. Are you going to present yourself to sin as its slave or to God as his slave? Now, to understand Paul's use of the word slavery here, let me just take a little moment here to give a little parenthetical comment on, the, on slavery. When you hear slavery in the scripture, I want you to be careful not to superimpose upon that word what we understand when we think about the African slave trade, the hideous African slave trade where men were stolen from their homes and families were stolen and then sold as property. Okay, that's not, there was some of that going on in Paul's day and in the Old Testament as well, but that's not the majority. The bulk of slavery during those days, matter of fact, man-stealing is clearly prohibited in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, the death penalty is called for anyone who steals a man and sells him into slavery. So those who walk around saying, well, the Bible condones slavery, are just stupid. They don't know what they're saying. Sorry, it's just the case. Now, the type of slavery that Paul was referring to here, you can tell by the language he uses, was a type of slavery where if you were in debt to someone, let's say I owed Richie a a massive debt, and I can't pay it off. Richie lent me millions of dollars to build a home, and I built my home, and I can't pay it back, and and I come to Richie, and and he he repossesses my home, but I still owe him all the interest, and I am indebted to Richie, and so I serve him as a slave. I become his slave to serve him without pay. An indentured servant, if you would, is is the phrase that we we oftentimes use. Or it could happen this way. Let's say I owe someone else some money and uh, I don't want to go into slavery for them and so I get someone else to help me get out of my debt and I'm going to serve that other person as a slave to pay them back. Slavery was a, a, a means of dealing with debt in the Roman world. It was still a bad thing. Slaves were still considered less than human and they were oftentimes very, very, very mistreated. So it still wasn't a beautiful or good thing at all. It was a very bad thing. But that's how slavery worked in those days. Matter of fact, the Old Testament calls for you to set your slaves free. Those who are indebted to you every seven years are supposed to be setting them free. Forgiving the debts. I oftentimes joke we have the same slavery in our world today. We just, it's just credit cards. We're serving a different tyrant. Same slavery, just in a different way. Not as grotesque, perhaps, as what was going on in Paul's day. But, so with that picture of slavery... Let us understand what Paul's saying here when he says, present yourself 
when he's talking about presenting yourselves to someone as a slave, it would, mean, it would have meant willfully coming under the slavery of another. So we read verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Friends, we were once in debt, and the wages of our sin is death. The price we had to pay, the debt we owed was death. So we served sin in debt to sin. And the debt of sin earned us nothing but death. But praise be to God that through Christ Jesus, death has been satisfied. For those united to him in his death, his death has therefore been credited as our death. And the debt has been paid. We've been set free from slavery. So what business do we have presenting ourselves to the debt of slavery all over again? Instead, now we need to have a new type of slavery. We present ourselves to God, willfully presenting ourselves as slaves of righteousness. But not as indentured men in debt to Christ, but as forgiven men in love with Christ. There's a big difference. And therein lies kind of where I'm going to go for the rest of this sermon. The big difference and the key to sanctification. We must move from decisions to desires. Perhaps you've noticed the first word in my notes here, from decide to desire. We've got to move from decisions of the will to desires of the heart. And I'm going to come back to that here in a minute. Now, admittedly, the image of slavery and the thought of a Christian being a slave to God, that analogy or that metaphor has its limitations and I think Paul even recognizes that that's why he says in verse 19 I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations in other words guys we don't even have the language or the mental capacity to comprehend how glorious grace is so I'm going to use this image of slavery here it's almost like he's apologizing about it I'm just going to have to use human terms here because I can't explain it any better and it is a a useful illustration because we are to present ourselves in the service of our master, and our master truly is Jesus Christ. Verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness, leading to sanctification. That's what we're aiming for here. We want to grow in godliness. We want to be sanctified. We want to be made holy. So there's two paths. Presenting ourselves and our members as sin, to sin as slaves of unrighteousness and purity or in presenting ourselves and our members as slaves of righteousness and obedience to God. Verses 16 and 19 tell us that one leads to further lawlessness and to death and the other leads to life and holiness. So my friends, there is in this passage a profound warning for those who consider themselves to be Christians. If you continually, unrepentantly practice sin, if you continually present yourself to sin to be its slave, then the fruit will be death, meaning you were never truly united to Christ. If we continually, unrepentantly return to sin, it simply demonstrates that you were never free from it in the first place, that Christ is not your master, and thus you will not grow in holiness, and thus you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, for without holiness, the scriptures say, it's impossible to see God. Now, I'm not talking about sinless perfection here, but a holy progression. 
That should be happening in the life of every believer. A holy progression. We're progressing in holiness, growing in godliness. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. Scripture makes it very clear. There's not a single person, even a believer, who is perfect. But there's this fight, there's this battle going on against sin, and there's victory for the Christian. This is not a trivial matter. And thus we are to meditate upon these words of Paul and think deeply about them and ask ourselves penetrating questions. And ultimately we need to try to discern what it is that we truly desire. For this is not about outward performances. The Pharisees had the outward performances down, didn't they? This is about true desires, true affections, springing up from a heart that has been made new. That's what verse 17 is all about. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Have we become obedient from the heart? That's the question we should be asking ourselves. Again, this isn't sinless perfection. It's about what does your heart desire? Does your heart desire holiness or not? As I've said before, it means that we are on a trajectory toward holiness, a trajectory that we are glad to be on, that we love to be on. It's our joy to defeat sin. It's our joy to grow in godliness. And if we don't detect that we're growing in godliness, we should be absolutely miserable. If, if someone says they're a Christian and they're not growing in godliness, there's no evidence they're growing in godliness, and they're just la-di-da happy person, I'm not sure the Spirit's really there because the Spirit is grieved by our sin. The Spirit is grieved and we're not growing in holiness. We are to be on a trajectory toward Christ's likeness. That's what the Spirit is doing. He's making us more like Christ. So if we're not on that direction and we're just over here just living life however we want to live it, my friends, there is no evidence that the Spirit is there in the first place. So we take these words as warnings to the heart. Warnings causing us to examine ourselves. For the Christian, the joy of sinning should be a thing of the past. Verse 19. You once presented your members as slaves to impurity. Past tense. You once did that. But not anymore. We don't find our joy there anymore. Now we present our members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Christ's likeness is now our destiny, and we desire it. It is our joy and our pleasure to be made more like Christ. It isn't always easy, and it's not always enjoyable. Because God will sometimes use very difficult circumstances to make you more like Christ. But for the believer... Even in the midst of tremendous pain and difficulty, there is a joy in his heart and a peace that transcends all understanding because it's a peace generated by the Spirit of God. And we're on that trajectory even though we're having to go through a very difficult valley right now. And it, and it pleases our heart to know that our Father is disciplining us. That's how we know we're legitimate sons. That we're being disciplined. Otherwise, as the author of Hebrews says, you're illegitimate children. You're not really a Christian if you're not seeing that God uses difficulty to mold you into the image of Christ. Growth in godliness is a heartfelt desire and a pleasure to the heart of every true believer. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago, this is a, this is a battle about competing promises. And it's a battle over competing desires. 
the promises of sin and the desire to have all that it offers or the promises of God in Christ and the desire to have all that he offers. It's competing desires, competing promises. Hebrews eleven twenty four, glorious passage. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He had a better desire. He had something that was going to be much better than anything sin could offer. And he fixed his eyes on that and kept going for that. Willpower isn't enough. Yes, our will, if you're a Christian, has been redirected. But more than our will, our passions, our desires, our affections have been turned to something greater. And thus they drive us toward holiness. We now see God as desirable. We now see him much more desirable than sin. The true Christian who is obedient from the heart presents himself to God because, yes, he does decide not to follow sin, but more than that, he desires God. Yes, logic allows him to see sin's futility, but more than that, love drives him to see God's excellence. Yes, the truth of sin is exposed, but more than that, the treasure of Christ is revealed. That's what we got to treasure Christ. That's the key to growing in godliness is to treasure Christ. That's what the whole series, Seeing and Savoring Christ, is all about. My whole desire in that series is that we'll grow in godliness simply because we see Christ better. We treasure him. It's not enough for us to say, well, that's bad and that's bad and that's bad. Let's expose all the sin. Yes, let's expose the sin, but let's reveal the glory of Christ. And boy, that's what we want. That's what we're after. That's the battle we're called to. A battle where we desire the treasures of heaven more than the fleeting pleasures of sin. So let's finish the passage now. Let's finish it up now. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? So Paul's right there. What's what's Paul saying? He's saying, what benefit were you getting? Paul's trying to stoke up their desires. What, what benefit were you getting? And he's trying to stoke up their, their desires. What do you want? He says, he goes on, for the end of those things is death. But now, mm-hmm, but now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Here comes the benefit. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Desire that more than you desire what sin has to offer. The prize, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The desire, we we should desire the fruit that comes from being enslaved to God. The fruit that makes us holy. The fruit that eventually leads to the treasure of eternal life. Don't buy into the counterfeits. Satan is a liar. He will dress up sin to try to get you to serve it and desire it. He will try to get you to treasure it, but don't treasure it. It's It's like the treasure hunters going on a... Going up, finding a treasure map and going on a treasure hunt and finding the spot where the X is marked and they dig up the treasure chest in great anticipation. They open it up and it's just full of sand. And they, they run their hands through the sand. There's nothing there. 
they spent so much of their time and so much of their life going after this, and it's just, it's just emptiness. That's what sin promises. And that's what you get when you open up the box that sin promises. You simply find death. For the wages of sin is death. The treasure box of sin, death. But when you're truly united to Christ, you will desire godliness. And the end of that long, sometimes tough road of sanctification, there's another treasure chest. One you have not earned. It is a free gift of God. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, don't get me wrong. Don't leave here thinking that sanctification earns you anything. Sanctification doesn't earn you anything. God doesn't owe his creatures anything. Sanctification is not the act of earning eternal life, but it's a life of yearning for eternal life. There's a difference. One is legalism. The other is desiring God above all other things, and therefore, I'm going to go down that road of holiness. Because I know what its end is. Sanctification and eternal life. Christ is our treasure, and if we are truly in him, we will truly treasure him. Yes, the battle for godliness is a battle we must fight. We must work. But glory be to God that we have assurance that it is a battle that, we, that will be won for all true believers. True believers will fight and will win the battle for holiness. For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Praise be to God, he's going to make it happen. For all true believers in this room today. And that's the way the formula works. We're united to Christ. He's doing a work in all those who are truly united to him. And we are on a progression of holiness. It's where we want to be. And we're working hard at it. And we're going down that road. If we get the formula wrong somewhere, we'll end up with legalism or license. Do whatever you want. It's no big deal. You're saved, right? Man. That's a hellish place to be. Or, man, you got to do all this stuff too. I know, I know you, you're saved, but man, you got to go to church. Gotta do, gotta, that's also a hellish place to be. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed let's bow our heads and close our eyes and if you're here this morning and you've been serving sin all your life you've never surrendered to the rightful king of your heart I would ask you this morning to consider the words what we've talked about and consider the words of Christ that if the sun sets you free you will be free indeed I would love to talk to you more about the gospel, what Christ has accomplished for those who are united to him, and how it will set you free, my friends. It will set you free. So after the service, I'm available to talk. Right now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, and we praise you for your word. I thank you, Father, that there is a treasure. There is a reward awaiting all true believers. And that reward namely is the presence of Jesus Christ in the body, in the flesh, right there. Our treasure is you, God. We want you. We want eternal life with you. So God, I pray that if there be any in here who think that Christianity is simply 
shake, a handshake, checking off a box on a card, praying a prayer, joining a church, or any of those things that we have boiled it down to. But I pray that they'd hear the warnings of Scripture. That if the affections haven't been changed, and that if the, the heart hasn't been made new, and that if there isn't a desire now to serve a new king, there's no evidence that we've ever been set free from the other king, the king called sin. And so, God, I pray this morning if there be anybody in here with an unbelieving heart, that you would break that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, and that we'd see new life emerge from here today. And God, for those of us who are just battling in this Christian walk, we have good days, we have bad days. Lord, help us to see that ultimately you are the one doing a good work in us. You're going to bring it through, see it through to completion. And that's why we keep on working hard. Because we know, God, you're going to finish the task. So God, grant us the grace to fight, to strive, to kill sin. We're dead to sin, but sin's still wiggling around. We need to kill it. So God, I pray that you grant us the grace to do that in each one of our lives. So now as we finish with the song, Lord, I pray that you be glorified in this final time of singing and as we bring the service to a close today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.